we're starting this episode off a little bit differently. Normally, we introduce ourselves right at the top and then dive into whatever topic we're going to be covering. Uh, that said, there's something we feel we need to mention uh, because there's an organization that uh, we have gotten to experience and have gotten to support. Uh, thinking back to our first season, our season finale was an episode called Inside the Hall of Heroes. And if you listen to that episode, Caleb and I did a road trip up to Elkhart and got to experience the largest superhero memorabilia collection in the world, along with, I think, like the fourth largest comic book historical collection in the world. The uh, founder and curator, Alan Stewart, uh, was kind enough to give us a tour. We got uh, to have a lot of really amazing conversations with him as we were kind of overloaded with information about different exhibits and just kind of in awe of all the different movie props, old comics, uh, and just amazing pieces of aut autographed pictures and exhibits all, all over the place. If you have something that you love about the world of comic books and superheroes, you can probably find either something directly connected to it or adjacent to it uh, within that building. Unfortunately, that building was burglarized on March 19th, and some parts of uh, their displays and parts of their current remodel were damaged, and some aspects and some pieces from their exhibits were stolen, uh, including copies of Captain America number one, Hulk number one, X-Men number one, uh, the first Iron Man, and many more. I remember when we talked to Alan, he told us that you could only find Captain America number one in two places, the Hall of Heroes and the Library of Congress. They do have a GoFundMe going right now uh, in an effort to recoup uh, some of their losses and from the damages, so we're going to link to that in the show notes. And we would strongly encourage you, like, if you're in the Midwest, <laughs> find a way to see the Hall of Heroes at least once in your life. I know I want to make a trip back and soon uh, and support everything that Alan is doing and everything that the Hall of Heroes represents. Uh, we want to shower them with love and support and boost the signal in any way we can as they try to rebound from this. Welcome to Storytelling Breakdown. I'm Ben Clemmer. Are you ready? Hand over your doubloons, ladies and gents, to Fuzzy Buckshot. <laughs> that was really good. I don't know if I can follow it up. My pirate name is Bojangles McGee, Sailor of the Seven Seas, or Captain of the Seven Seas one day, you know, if I get enough ships. I've discovered why I can't think of a pirate name. And why is that? Because mm. I never would have been a pirate. What would you have been? <laughs> Probably some low-level midshipman stuck on some man of war hating his life. Mystic Gibbs, as it were. <laughs> maybe I get lucky. And I or Gillette. Yeah. Maybe oh, I, get, I get lucky and I'm a lieutenant at some point. Probably oh. never captain. I'm not a man. Lieutenant Stahovsky. Lieutenant Stahovsky. <laughs> his Majesty's Royal Navy. Which we can say his now, again. This, this, this is a strange, strange world we live in. The pirate creation of my youth has recently gotten repurposed into a custom planeswalker that I've been teching. And uh, that nice. character's name is uh, Ravencrow, Admiral of the Undead, though he would have been some variation of probably Captain Benjamin Ravencrow when I was a kid. Benjamin Ravencrow. Benjamin Ravencrow. I like that. Mm -hmm. He sails on black wings. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I'm in the I, mood, guys. Yes. Yeah, yeah, no, I, they're, I brought they're, the rum. Oh, you can't tell. We're talking. Pirates. There were it's shades like, of "Are you ready, kids?" in your know, introduction. I I mean, it just doesn't get better than like Captain Kid or 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 uh, Blackbeard, Bojangles is Bartholomew, pretty good. Roberts. I mean, uh, Calico Jack. Uh, it's like those the, the greatest pirate names have already been given out. Uh, what are we gonna do here? They have. If I had to pick one, I'd pick Blackbeard. 
One Piece has some amazing pirate names. Raleigh Silvers. Raleigh Silver. Yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. Edward Teach. Yeah, mm. Ed Teach was was Blackbeard's Teach. name. Well, theoretically, or, or Thatch. I think Thatch, was, depending on yeah. Teach and Thatch is kind of uh, it's kind of unclear. No, he was probably born somewhere in North Carolina. Well, he was born in England, but he lives somewhere in North Carolina. And our flag means death. He has a little rhyme where he says, "Edward Teach, born on a beach." Isn't he played by Taika Waititi? In he the is. So good. Of course, given we're planning you to talk about it. Pirates of the good. Caribbean, so my brain good. immediately went to Ian McShane. Yeah, Ian McShane does a wonderful job. Does a character. great job with Blackbeard in the worst of the installments of the Pirates series. Having only recently finally seen all five, I'd agree it's the weakest. It's I, the I weakest. Fi- the fifth one did rebound. Luckily, today we're here to yes. talk about the first one. Yes, the Pirates greatest. of the Caribbean, one. Curse of the Black Pearl. And its inspiration, uh, given I'm the only one of the four of us who has not experienced the ride in person, so I look yeah, forward to and especially getting more given info from the that three of you. It has very recently been the 50th anniversary of the ride Pirates of the Caribbean opening in oh Disney gosh. World. That is 50 yes. years. And we're coming Amazing. up on the 20th anniversary of Curse of the Black Pearl, which we I are. feel like I aged five years just by saying that. Jeez, oh, oh, yeah, you did. So did I. 60 years? I may have years. misspoke. Is it, is it longer? It, it might be longer, guys. It might be older. Than well, that. it's not. It's, it's not a special anniversary of the, the first one. It's the second one that's. Got it's the hundred year anniversary of the Disney Company, and last year was the fifty year anniversary of Walt Disney World. But the and next year will be the shoot the seventy fifth anniversary of the parks. Is that math correct? Yeah, because Disneyland's older than Disney World mm-hmm. by by a bit. Because the crazy. Pirates of the Caribbean ride in Disneyland opened a few years after the park itself opened. I think it opened in 1967. So how old were we when the first one came out? Uh, eight. Would have been 2003, oh, so eight or nine right. years old. Eight or nine. Yeah. It's yeah. the 50-year anniversary crazy. of the Walt Disney World Pirates of the Caribbean ride, which opened on December 15, 1973. The Disneyland Pirates of the Caribbean ride opened on March 18, 1967, so it was almost exactly 56 years ago as of recording this podcast episode. some watch throughs of just ride throughs of the attraction and it's wonderful to see the loop that it now exists between the ride inspired the films the films have now inspired elements that exist within the ride and you can kind of at that point it blurs the line a little bit in terms of what came first and 
just seeing those connections between the two was really neat. I think there's a lot to learn from that because in the world of Imagineering, the Pirates of the Caribbean ride is looked at as the gold standard of what a Disney attraction could be. Is it as good as Pirates? Then let's aim for that bar or exceed it. So I think that there is something to be said for not only how excellent the attraction is, but what a successful adaptation the films are especially in the era we are in with so many remakes, adaptations, sequels. The Pirates movie does an excellent job, and maybe it's easier because it's a ride, of taking elements and the energy and the spirit and essence of the original ride and translating that into a film in a way that gives the viewer the same experience of adventure and joy and all these, um, that gives the viewer the same experience without necessarily uh, just retreading the same ground. The, the three times I've been to Disney World, and I was a kid all three times. I haven't been back as an adult, which, you know, the future, it's very possible. I'll take my boys and my daughter. Yeah. I have a daughter now, dear listener. <laughs> I don't know if I said I that on the last episode, but dear listener, I have a daughter now. It's nice to see you since then. Yes. I know, right? Yeah, because I believe we recorded some spotlight content before she came along. So, yeah, welcome yeah, back. Has it, yeah, it's been almost two months since, since we've seen you guys. Holy cow. <laughs> Anyways, um, I have a daughter. This is, I had a thought before I said that. Um, so the three times <laughs> I've been on the ride course. have been, uh, I, I was a kid. I, mean, I think the oldest I was was 18 uh, the last time I went on it. And it's still my favorite ride. It was 100% my favorite ride every time I went. And, and part of that was because like the first time I remember my parents hyping it up, especially my mom. Uh, and then because my grandparents took us the, the first two times I went. And that was her favorite ride. So it was going to be mine. Uh, apparently but that it was the truth i loved it i loved the ships i loved the action i loved um the, the swashbuckliness i mean i grew up with we grew we, a lot of us grew up with princess bride the legend of zorro the peter pan peter pan i loved peter pan it's a hook even, hook loved hook so yeah I, the pirate ride of course it was gonna be my favorite but even just looking back on it it's a brilliant ride i mean it, tell, it tells a really cool fun story it puts you into the world it's got some dr- some drops two of them um, and then as the movies came out, they went back and they redid them. And that's honestly still very cool to, to see Captain Barbosa on the ship now attacking the fort. What was before kind of a nameless pirate ship firing cannonballs across your head, which was very cool. And it's interesting to see how they've changed it as additional films have been released or popular in the Pirates canon. Because I remember the first time I wrote it, I was nine years old. And it was the Disney World ride over in Florida. And before one of the two drops, you would have to go through like this hazy fountain where they projected a face of Davy Jones on it. Yeah, they and did And little nine-year-old me was so scared. But I recently went again as a 25-year-old. <laughs> Still a little bit scared, but I didn't. They didn't have that same illusion where you would go through. They took Davy Jones' face. No, it was oh. just like a regular. I love Davy Jones without it being central to him, since the story moved past him in the films. Three so not days promoting the movie anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Three <laughs> days, ninety-nine souls. It's so atmospheric. I've only been once. I think I was 11 years old when I went. I was either 11 or 12. So long enough ago that my memory is yeah, no, for sure. hazy, hazy. But yeah, even like the entrance, even, you know, the building that you queue in to get into the ride. I remember being like, yeah, this is like, this is Everything exciting. It. It's kind of interesting. About it. And that's one of the greatest things about going to the Disney parks is, is every ride sets that standard. They try. It's completely immersive. Even the line mm-hmm. getting to the ride has got, has got to be a, an experience. And of course, in the most recent time I went, ah uh, no, the second to last time I went, 
I was with my then girlfriend, now wife, because it was part of our high school trip, which was very cool. But I, it was a blast. I think we rode that ride that the time that we went at least twice, maybe three times, just because it's and there's something about it. Like I love the haunted mansion as well, which they did a movie adaptation of, which is. Right around the same time. Right it's around the excellent. same time. Yeah. Eddie Murphy. So I good. like that movie. It's so good at movie. being what it is. I don't know what it was. They did, they had this this kick for just two movies, maybe three, uh, of where they adapted these rides. I think it was Country Bears Jamboree was the first and one. And that movie <laughs> is uh, not very good. No, that one was bad. You're right. That was... They okay, don't talk so about they, that one. One strikeout. Yeah. They gave it a go, and then they and, learned know, from that best and two made out of three? Pirates of the Caribbean. Best two out of three? <laughs> I don't know. It's something about it. you know... Shiploads of money. Shiploads of <laughs> money. Shiploads. It did though, Boat didn't loads. it? And it had a great <laughs> cast. Um, but it kept that atmosphere. I mean, just, just the opening part of the movie. Well, and is it's very, crazy the, the effect same, very same that atmosphere. Not even the movies, but the ride, the attraction has had on pirate culture. When we were researching the rides before the podcast, I was, you know, very interested to learn that the song "Yo Ho, Yo Ho." A Pirate's Life for Me <laughs> was written for the ride. Yeah. And that's so like, you, kids just associate that with pirates. Like exactly. They probably all think that that was a real pirate song. Well, I knew it wasn't, but I, I run a performance group that focuses yes, on sing, sea shanties, shanties and, and, and pirate songs and Irish folk and that kind of a thing. So I knew it wasn't as old. We looked at it. We wanted to look at it, and I found out that Disney still had the copyright. It was, yeah, it was written in the, in the 60s. Uh, mm. You know, uh, it's great. And, and they use it in the movies. Which is also funny. As soon as we see Elizabeth Swan, she's singing that song. And you had, when we were watching some videos on the on the rides and just the way that they were put together, I, of course, latching onto all things audio, I love that the, the way they described that, the way you hear it or experience the different characters interacting and talking, it's kind of like what, uh, what we described was a descriptive sequence in video games, where if your character is here, you're going to hear bits and pieces of this conversation, but you're going to hear from the perspective of where your character happens to be in the yeah. world. It made me think of something like Batman flying around in Arkham City. As soon as yeah, you glided away from those goons, you're not hearing that conversation Or any of anymore. the Assassin's Creed games. Yep. or Black Flag, where Black you flag play as a pirate a, that's in a great, the Caribbean. <laughs> it's a great <laughs> game. You can see the overlap there because they're both so deeply about creating an immersive world, And you're right? predating video games. Yeah, it's just, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh my but, goodness. I mean, Black Flag... Brilliant, brilliant game about being a pirate. Terrible Assassin's Creed game. <laughs> brilliant game. Not about being an assassin. So we'll set that aside. It'll be a topic for another day maybe, but a great game about being a, uh, yeah. a pirate. And, and I think also really heavily influenced by... It would not. I don't think it would have been as successful in the Assassin's Creed if genre not if for not for the, the popularity of... And the movies would not have existed, existed if not for the ride. Yeah, seriously. Because so. the pirate genre was essentially dead. I mean, after Errol Flynn, the pirate yep. genre was effectively dead. There wasn't a lot going on in that uh, vein of entertainment um, yeah. until until Pi- Pirates of the Caribbean, really. Yeah. No, breathe new life into a genre. Because we talked about this last season with uh, our conversation on Our Flag Means Death. And again, just I re- it blows my mind, and I'm actually very excited to eventually. Obviously, you'll get to experience the movies with your kids, I'm excited to show my niece and nephews Pirates of the Caribbean, Christian oh, Black yeah. Pearl for the first time. But oh, I'm also yeah. realizing they're coming into it now in terms of age range. It's like, oh, like your relationship with this is going to be kind of similar to mine with the original Star Wars and Indiana Jones. Like that kind of times out right in terms of yeah. how old Weird, the child huh? experiencing this would be <laughs> even with the fact that this movie is now 20 years old. It just and then also, I mean, I especially like the Indiana Jones comparisons because, again, there's going to be five installments and the fact that. 
in so many ways we can look back at the first installment and just go this thing is basically perfect like it just still holds up so well yeah, 20 years yeah. later there's an indiana jones ride in disneyland i didn't get to ride it when i went and last there was month there was, it was a big for one refurbishment I there's thought a, it was a show there's, there's a, a show, show which is really in cool disney world and there's yeah, a ride yeah, in disneyland the show was fun that's i mean the whole thing about and the reason that pirates was able to con- i think the biggest reason why pirates was able to convert into such a good movie is because not just it, it's not just the ride that the whole area around the ride is like walking into tortuga in Orlando, Florida, which really isn't actually that far off. It's only about 100 miles. I think that they paid attention to the important parts of... I think they focused on the right things in order to translate the ride into film. So they do directly call back to the ride in moments like when Barbosa is talking to Elizabeth Swan and trying to scare her, intimidate her about how all the pirates are cursed and skeleton-y. And he steps into the moonlight and then drinks that bottle of wine and you see it go all over his skeleton. That is a thing that's directly pulled from the ride. There is a skeleton drinking a bottle of wine and you can see like the light illusion of him guzzling the wine down. I love the... the No, did that exist before? I'm sure it did. I think Mm -hmm. it did. I love the reason. The, the The reason for all of these skeleton pirates in the ride is now... Now we have one because of the movie. And I, as a like, as a, somebody who likes to do DMing and as somebody who likes to develop my own stories, that is a great reason. Like, cursed Aztec gold. Oh, so good. Now everybody's dead, but not. Oh, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And it does. It makes sense. Now the ride, it's just another layer to the ride. When you, If you go on it again, and now you know this because you've seen the movie. Uh, and it goes back to that loop, too. It's interesting if you take the ride as it is as well. There is... Prior to doing this recording and prior to my trips to Disney World or Disneyland, I watched Molly's Guide on Mammoth Club to figure out sort of how you navigate Disney Genie Plus and Lightning Lanes, all that business. But one fun fact she shared in a Disney Secrets video was that in Pirates of the Caribbean, the ride is framed so that when you see all those skeletons of pirates at the beginning of the ride and then you go down the drops and you see them alive and well, it's like you're going back in time. Mm-hmm. Very much so. I like the the scene with the prisoners in the cell trying to get the dog with yeah, the keys. That was that was originally in the ride. Yeah, that that same video that we watched, they had concept art. You know, when they first created the ride, that's like in that original Disney animation style. I love, I love. Oh, Jack's and it's so lines. cool. And then yeah, bringing that directly <laughs> into the movie. Try all you want, that dog is never going to listen. To you. And then the dog comes back in the third <laughs> film. It does the dogs? The dogs in all three films. Yeah. Well, it's on the island. The, he is. He's, he's yeah. on the island. He's on the island. It's in all three of the Gorbabitsky ones. Yeah. And the best part about the, the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie and, and also the ride, you get off the ride, you're satisfied. You've had a you've had the experience. You've had the, the, the story. And you really don't need anything else. That first movie, I'm, I'm going to tell you now, I, re, I rewatched it recently when I was building a Christmas gift. I got a <laughs> gift. Uh, I took some pictures of it. I'll send them to you. Yeah. Um. You did right. send me one, I think. Yeah. Oh, I, I did. I earlier today. I took some new pictures. Sam's. Okay. With, oh, very because, good. Yeah. To give for for a sense of how big this thing is, uh, my dad gave me a Christmas gift. It was a model of the Flying Dutchman, and the thing from stem to stern from the movie from the not the, the SpongeBob scene. one. No, no, the one from the no, you're the good. one from the second part. You're good. You're good. Like there's not entire walls missing from this version <laughs> of the Flying Dutchman. No. We'll buff out those no. scratches. Um, <laughs> it's got 64 <laughs> cannon on it, actually. I should know. I put them all in by hand. 
Uh, <laughs> so no, he gave me, and so when I was building it, and it, I hate instruction books. <laughs> I've learned this a couple of times, but the instruction book said four hours build time. I started building that ship at like eight o'clock one night. And at 1 a.m. I had to call it, and I didn't even have the the, the hull done. <laughs> the ship was ribs and a couple of decks. What, and was, that's the, what it. was the what was the age recommendation? Uh, 14 plus. So obviously I am a child. <laughs> but this, the, I mean, this an thing older is huge. child, an older so child. close to adulthood. I know, I'm so close. I am an educated child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. but it's about it's almost two feet long from stem to stern. It's at least two feet high. Uh, Do you from, get a tiny the, little Davy Jones or no, a tiny little? There's no people. You should get a little. Model. But when I was building, well, then it, what's the point of cool. having the ship without was, people to operate it? It's a model. I don't get models. It's only a model. Um, a model. <laughs> but when I was building it, I watched, of course, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, and that that first movie, even now, they didn't. I, I they didn't need to write anything else. I'm glad they did. They I love didn't, the first three movies. But it was very financially successful. That so. is true. But that first one was perfect. I mean, it is it self-contained. Is. You didn't need anything I else. I think it hits it, it, it hits the same beats as the ride, where it's immersive, it creates this this compelling atmosphere, and it has such great attention to detail. The visual effects for the first movie still look They're, really, yeah, really good they really today. Are. They really are. I think the only the only scene that came up when I was watching it, and it wasn't even is the only one that came up was the the ocean walk. It's uh, a little funky. It's but... it's a li- barely. Yeah, it's just the just the tediest little hair. Recalling the words of Jason Reitman uh, from his experience of directing Ghostbusters Afterlife, he talked about doing effect shots, and there's basically two rules you need to make sure that you follow. One, when in doubt, do it in low light if you can. And obviously, given that the, the pirates become yeah, skeletal seriously. under moonlight, they're going to be in darkness mm-hmm. anyway, so you're covered there. And then don't hold long on any shots. And the walk under the water is one of the longer sustained it's longer. shots in mm. the entire film. It so is one of the sense. longer ones, but it it still looks great. I was looking earlier to to turn the table on effects. Uh, somebody had done a side-by-side comparison of video games. One was Battlefield 1, which came out in 2016. The other was the most recent Battlefield, 19, uh, Battlefield 2042 or whatever. Uh, the visuals look better in Battlefield 1, man. They really do. <laughs> And I think because Battlefield 1 took a lot longer to develop, they they really focused on it. And that's part of the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. I mean, that movie took how long to shoot? It was a long production time. And it paid off. I really do think so. I think that's something I noticed between going to Disney World and Disneyland, with Disneyland being the one that was built first and that they needed to be really successful versus a land that was built off of an existing successful property. To me, at least, it felt like you could tell looking at things how deeply people loved what they were doing and loved the craft of it versus recreating something that somebody else made. It felt like everything across the park was something that somebody got to take ownership of. And I think that same energy is in the Curse of the Black Pearl film. That you can sense that everybody from props to costumes to the actors to the directors, everyone who was involved seemed to have given it their all based on my viewing experience. I didn't work on the movie, of course, but that's what you feel. Uh, That's what I felt seeing it. Costuming is brilliant. Did you find how long production was? (laughs) Uh, Filming took place from October 2002 to March 2003. Yeah. So that was principal filming, and then it was released in... 
the end of June, yep. uh, 2003. So, whoa! So it was filmed. So it was March actually filmed and produced under a year. Yep. Wow. Mm. It feels so much longer than that. I thought it was longer. The, than well, the longest step is always pre-production, which is not factored yep. in there. The, uh, well, there, yes. Yeah. Uh, Jay Wolpert developed a script in 2001, and Stuart Beatty rewrote it in early uh, 2002. So, you know, about a year spent on the script. Had a budget of 140 million and raked in 654.3 million at the box office. Woo! So. Yeah, and it that was, was lucrative. Early two thousands. That's a big. That's one. pretty significant. That's really significant. You know, there wasn't all these movies making a billion dollars. No. Anyways, the ride. Big key differences. I swear, up and down, the Orlando ride is backwards compared to the Disneyland ride, and it's only from the shot that we watched of the the, the ride through when you get to the pirate ship attacking Port Royal. We'll say Port Royal because now we have the movie we know it's supposed to be Port Royal. When I'm the Orlando ride, I will swear on my grave that the ship is on my right when I enter that scene and the port is on my left. But when we were watching the ride through of Disneyland, the ship was on my left and the port was on my right. That's that's the only um, that's the only key difference I'm going to point out because that's the only one I can think of. One of the differences in the storytelling between the Disneyland and the Disney World ride is that the Disney World Pirates of the Caribbean ride is set in Adventureland, whereas the Disneyland Pirates of the Caribbean ride is within New Orleans Square. So instead of exiting out into a gift shop at the Disneyland Pirates ride, you'll exit out into a New Orleans street that is filled with little shops that are gift shops, of course, compared to how it is in Disney World. One other thing that makes it different is that the Disneyland ride being part of New Orleans Square will take you through a restaurant area. So there is a restaurant in Disneyland where you can sit and eat and you will see boats of people riding Pirates of the Caribbean pass by throughout your stay there. And it's then, so cool. isn't that neat? It's so cool. That's awesome. The one of the rides in Disney World isn't that does that is Epcot's uh, Mexico. Their mm. Mexico, their ride for Mexico either ends or starts or part of it is in the restaurant. Plus, it's just a brilliant restaurant. So good. It's so immersive the way that they oh have it Oh, my gosh. Up. It's very, very cool. Very, very cool. Anyways, I mean, same thing. And everything about Disney is about that experience. It's always about the as the immersion. And yeah, sometimes it feels like some of the new stuff has lost a little bit of that, especially as we're just continuing to expand on properties that already exist, that are already well-established. With the new series and the new films that they're producing, Boba Fett was rough. It didn't feel like it got the same attention to detail. So is that where you feel like the key difference is? Because I feel like there is a passion, to me at least, as a viewer, I experience both the ride and the film as being something that people loved into being versus being something people made because they thought it would be a safe bet I think financially across, for their company. I think that comes across in the film really well because you know people have talked about the work that Johnny Depp went into in developing the character of Jack Sparrow. Yeah. And just... You know, he helped make his costume where he was like, oh, I'm going to just grab all these little, you know, bits and bobbles and put them onto my costume. The little coins and the like deer bone. You notice, uh, I, I, I hate to say a level of craftsmanship that just seems to be lacking in some of the newer properties. But then we get it with things that are more original and or. Wow. It, it astounded me. Uh, but Boba Fett, not so much. The second season of Mandalorian was good, but not as good as the first, in my opinion. Haven't watched any of the third one, so we'll, hold off on that. We'll be able to take a wide-angle lens, I suspect, in a number of years and kind of look at just the way 
media experience changed as we started to see things being geared towards an audience of subscribers. Yeah, at that point, you, because at that point you do have an emphasis on quantity over quality. Yeah, because mm-hmm. you you don't have to re, you don't have to rake it in a, at the box office. You don't have to drive people to come out and see it. You just got to make sure people have a reason to keep paying for their Disney Plus exactly. Yep. Um, or Netflix or HBO or whatever the subscription is. Everybody across the board, it kind of feels like. This may be a veering way off, but speaking of Netflix and people having reasons to keep their accounts, I think Stranger Things does well the same thing that the Pirates of the Caribbean ride does well as far as taking inspiration something without being derivative of that thing. All those 80s movies, Stand By Me, E.T., like they they clearly, the Duffer Brothers, you know, that's a very integral part of their childhoods and they brought that to the screen and you can take so many aspects of pirates legend and lore and you start to see them baked into obviously curse the black pearl and the sequels that will come later as you get davy jones and blackbeard and just other elements or but in and then even from the beginning with references to the pirates of morgan and bartholomew it's like oh okay yeah. well henry morgan bartholomew <laughs> roberts like, yeah, it's like like they're i mean it's the quick code. quick name dropping, like guidelines but there's, <laughs> more there's like guidelines references to history there that i remember a young me like I had maybe a casual interest in pirates and history at best, and then this movie opened up that entire world, and or I even wanted to the learn East everything. India Trading yeah. Company, yeah, you know, exactly. They, oh, they you don't make the that East the India villain yeah, that unless you great. know the history. Mm-hmm. That was great. I loved the fact that they made the East India Trading Company the bad guys because <laughs> they were not a pleasant group well, of men. And you and I were talking the anti-capitalist Disney movies. <laughs> <laughs> you and I were talking about Barbosa and. I likened him to Magneto just in how he's used in the Fox X-Men films because he's very much positioned as the villain of the story in the, in the first, first movie. And then he's things kind of change a wildly ally. Yeah, after that. The okay. difference yeah. is yeah. in the X-Men movies, Magneto starts to feel like the sassy gay uncle in the later films. <laughs> Barbosa feels like the sassy alcoholic uncle in the later <laughs> well, films. Well, he's a pirate. Speaking of alcohol, he wants more rum. Uh, like a, a just, just a, a splash. We're civilized on this podcast. My As the drink is poured to kind of com- complete that comparison, like the second Pirates film almost feels like X2 because the heroes are having to deal with villains on two sides who, at least in that movie, do not have any dealings with one another. Obviously, at World's End throws that completely out the window. But it kind of feels like how Magneto and Stryker are positioned in the second X-Men film because you have Xavier and all of the X-Men caught in the middle of this conflict between two very powerful and opposing forces in terms of what they're trying to do in their worldviews. And you have kind of something similar with Beckett and with Davy Jones. But again, taking this back to the first film and again, just that kind of perfect movie sense that I definitely got on rewatch as Melissa and I went through all five of the movies. It's all of them for as much as they pack in, especially to the longer installments, blew my mind how fast-paced they felt. It yes. Curse of the Black Pearl especially. Yeah. There's not Just a doubt. The, pa- no, the, the pacing is excellent, and the story is layered, but not so complicated that you are moving across the world and seeing constantly changing allegiances, or at the very least, they're easier to follow in Curse of the Black Pearl than they are in any of the others. And I think the reason that works is because, especially in the first movie, the characterization of all of the characters is so well done. The Mm -hmm. introduction scene for basically every single character in the first film tells you everything you need to know about them. I mean, Jack Sparrow, when he rides up on the dock on the sinking ship. He rides a dinghy. Sinking dinghy (laughs) up to the dock. And stops, you know, he's bailing out his ship and then stops to, like, 
salute to reverence the, the dead. And you see, well, going back to the ride, I mean, you see just the ridiculous, funny things in when you when you get the live the live pirates where they're being chased around. A woman's gonna hit him over the head with a broom because he's running around with a pig or a plate of whatever. I'm sure he's stolen or broken stolen something. something or he's right? In- of course, that's what he, he, he deserves it. He's a ragamuffin. He's a ragamuffin. But it's it's all of that. The ride is both kind of sinister and extremely funny and entertaining. And it's it had some maybe not particularly PC things in it before because it was built in the 60s and 70s. And then they've, since all the updates have changed a few things as well. I think you brought up the the square in the burning town, the, which yes, I don't know, we assume is Port were, Royal or Tortuga. I They're effectively the like word. selling the women, women off. Which there's was, like uh, sex trafficking. No so bueno. Absolutely no scene. bueno. So they redid it. Now they have uh, some badass looking pirate chick up there yelling at the other guys. In a red dress. In a red dress. Captain Jack first goes to Tortuga. A woman in a red dress comes up and yells at him and slaps him. Yep. And so then it's interesting that I don't know what it was previously to the current show scene that has a woman standing more empowered rather than being traded. But it's a woman in a red dress with red hair. The whole franchise of pirates, the movies specifically, yeah. has really strong women characters throughout. I mean, Elizabeth is like arguably the, the best one She's out of the, the main three. One. Tia Dalma's uh, cool. Tia Dalma's a badass. Penelope Cruz in the fourth movie. Angelica, Honestly, yeah. the best. Yes. If I'm going to be serious, Penelope Cruz is the best part of that movie. Just like, she is the best part of the fourth and movie. And then, uh, spoilers for people who haven't seen Karina. the fifth movie. Karina. No spoilers. Karina's <laughs> cool. Karina's cool. Honestly, who's the helmsman? It's Zoe Saldana. Zoe Saldana yeah. in the first movie. Oh gosh, I don't remember. It's her, her ship. I don't remember what her character's name is. I don't remember her character's name. I at just all. see her and I go, Zoe Saldana. Right. Exactly. No, but it's it's her ship. Gamora. Remember? We'll <laughs> we'll get you a better one. That, that one. That one. <laughs> oh my god. That one. It's, it's her ship. Oh, I should have remembered. Jack says it. Anna Maria. Anna Maria. <laughs> That's right. Anna Maria. Smack. I suppose you don't deserve that one either. No. No, so many good lines, so many good good scenes. Even Elizabeth Swan, as a little girl, she's dressed all prim and proper, but she's singing a pirate song while her. staring out to the ocean beyond her. Yeah, not really and she on and she speaks back against her her uppers, her, mm-hmm. her elders or betters, even if, if you were. And she not breaks the rules to save somebody. The the and time. it's the same she thing the coin from when him. you see her as an adult. Where she's yeah. like, women must have learned how to not breathe in London when they're like putting the yeah. corset yes. on her and like she doesn't want to be restricted uh-uh. and contained by society. While Pirates of the Caribbean Curse of the Black Pearl does not pass the Bechdel test. Yep, that's fair. Uh, Kiera yeah. Knightley's character of that's Elizabeth fair. Swan is so interesting and complex. I like that you get to see from her from a young age wrestling with like what the whole story wrestles about with like what is right and for me personally, compared to what society says is or isn't right. What decisions are you going to make and are you going to stick by those decisions? Mm -hmm. And we see the early shades of her becoming the most resourceful character in the franchise. Oh, no. Elizabeth (laughs) Elizabeth is the most intelligent character in the franchise. She's so resilient. She's the most lucky Mm -hmm. character in the franchise. The the thing is, is whenever Elizabeth Swan chooses to do something, it goes right for her eventually. Because she doesn't quit. No, she doesn't. The if rest... something doesn't work out, she's going to escape out the window. She figures it out. If the, the pirates the men... aren't going to go with her, she'll just go on her own. I, know. I love that little scene when she's she's, she's in the, the rowboat. Bloody, like, Bloody pirates. 
because they all just. I love that like, line. No. That line gets repeated for like six or seven times by different Bloody characters. pirates! Bloody pirates! Yeah. It's great. There's a really great yeah, once they sense retake the pearl yeah. in watching the film too that it is so self-contained. You don't have to have any existing knowledge of the mm-hmm. ride. You could just watch it as its own thing and have an exactly, absolutely delightful time versus having any prior experience to it. And that's part of why I think we can continue to learn or current filmmakers can continue to learn about the success of this adaptation, how it pulls influences from the existing intellectual property, but still makes it its own thing in a way that's interesting and inventive and engaging for the audience without asking your audience to do work outside of giving me two and a half hours of your attention to watch this one movie. Are you making a reference to something? To another Disney-owned property? (laughs) Yes, perhaps. It kind of mirrors... The first Star Wars movie and the first Indiana Jones, where they, it, you have, you know, the sort of experienced Rep Scallion and Jack Sparrow. That's like a Han Solo parallel. And then Will is very Luke Skywalker, where he's young and inexperienced. He just doesn't know. He doesn't Follows know anything that's going on. And then Leia's the same as Elizabeth. You that's know, true. they're very go getter, uh, definitely the smartest one out of the group. Oh, yeah, for sure. Or if not the most intelligent, the most driven. Yes. Because, like, you can make the argument that Jack and Han are both very intelligent people, but they don't have the same drive. Jack's always got a motive. Han does, too, in in a sense. But Han's kind of happy just to sit back and let other people take care of his problems. Jack's like, how do I talk my way out of this? And it inevitably gets him in more trouble. Incidentally, that's how I play my D&D characters. (laughs) At least my bard. Yeah. How do I talk myself I, out? There's probably I, a parallel to something we've talked about mm-hmm. many times on the podcast, the five-man band. Yep. If there's like a three-person equivalent, it's that, where yeah. it's, you know, the sort of rough-around-the-edges guy. and A little the, bit more the, seasoned. Yeah, a little more seasoned, the youthful, kind of naive, hopeful yeah. protagonist. The hero, if you want right? to say. the up-and-coming hero. And, and the woman. And the woman, yeah. who yeah. is, no, you know, and more the, resourceful than both of them. Which, <laughs> me not... Doing the the digging into the uh, overly sarcastic productions video where I first le- or first got to hear Red's deep dive into the trope of the five man band, what she called the heart is actually in most variations in describing the, the team dynamic is usually also referred to as the chick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and and then you but then you think about April O'Neil to right. the teenage yeah Turtles, or you yeah. think of some or even just something like the Fantastic Four where it's like okay we've got the strong one the smart one. The, the the hot-headed one yes literally yes <laughs> and and, the, and then and then effectively the team mom yeah i mean that that really shows that dynamic hey man with all those tropes being leaned, leaned team, into as team as mom is super important otherwise team die and, and that's where again like the 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 agency and the resourcefulness and the the character traits that they give that elizabeth has in that story and what she's like and just like the it's the most recent rewatch was fascinating for me on several levels because i was trying to figure out just different spots where it's like did that character do that accidentally or deliberately? Because it's interesting to kind of consider both options. I thought about that with Murtaugh and Mulroy, just when like when they get in, uh, into arguments. Wait, just for just those of us off. who are better at remembering yes. names, Murtaugh and Mulroy are, are, the, the, are the two British uh, Himbo Redcoats. Yes. yes. And yeah. Himbo just because I'm watching them argue and I'm thinking to myself, on one hand, they could just be idiots. On the other hand, this is just them biding their time doing their job because they really don't care. <laughs> I love I love both. I'm not going to lie. I love yeah. both. It's kind of like when we talked about Battlefront all those seasons ago, mm. how there's two ways to look at that game, too. It's either mm. one man or it's multiple men. 
All right. Mm, right. Dear listeners, from first I'm going to yeah, turn you on absolutely. to an obscure piece of media. But if you like that trope of trying to decide whether or not the character is an Doing idiot something or a genius, or <laughs> you should watch The Irresponsible Captain Tyler. It is a anime from the 90s. Oh, it's no. very piratey because they're space pirates. Okay. I like but the it. whole question is the main character seems to be this idiot but everything he always does works out his whole crew is like this oh, he's gonna get us all killed and then it turns out you know they're all fine jack? in the end it's it's Whoop. pretty jack I mean, sparrow right, yeah. right jack I, what the, the, the physics opening... bend to his will seriously yes. that opening scene where he well not opening but that scene where he escapes mm-hmm. or attempts to escape and he is flying around on a boom because the counterweight is a cannon and norrington says it more than once or, or officers of the English Navy say it more than once because it's not just Norrington. That must be the best pirate I've ever seen. Well, Norrington says he's the worst pirate. The other he, ones yeah. are like he's the best pirate. He's the best. It's yeah, hilarious July. because like the things he does shouldn't work, and they do. And it's either he's just that lucky or he's that smart. Ben and I are very big fans of overly sarcastic productions on YouTube. Go check right. them out. They're amazing. Mm-hmm. They do have a trope video called... Crouching dumb? No, <laughs> I have to look it up. Crouching idiot, hidden badass. Yes, or something like crouching, that. crouching idiot, hidden, hidden badass. badass. And it's that I like the other one better, but okay, <laughs> I'll it's, take it. It's someone who appears to be very dumb. Red Foreman's children. Yes. <laughs> Break my foot off in your. As we were noticing the motifs of like, he's the best pirate I've ever seen. He's the worst pirate I've ever seen. Or when they say things like bloody pirates over and over again. I don't know the writing term for it, but it's the same thing that comedy specials do well. Where it feels like you are going through a series of small stories that build into a larger one. Because you keep referencing back to yourself through the story in a way that pays off. There probably is a wrong. term for that. I'm sure there is. I don't know I what don't it know is. I don't know what it is. You just circled us back to the introduction to because when you were saying, I have a daughter, my brain was immediately going to the end of the Bo Burnham special where he sings a verse and then it's just so we can have someone in the house whose hand is small enough to fit yeah. inside a Pringle can. <laughs> he talks about his problems. <laughs> yep. And his hand is too big to fit inside a Pringle can. Yeah, my hand Almost an bent. hour later, we're back to... <laughs> too big to fit in a Pringles can since high school. To be it's topical... Chris Rock's new stand-up special is very good. I want to watch it so bad. It's what I was thinking of because he says the phrase selective outrage toward the beginning and it pays off again at the end. Just like saying bloody pirates. Oh, Lord. Bloody pirates. Well, while we are, I feel like we've we've given some time to Elizabeth. We've, of course, dedicated some time to Jack. Do we want to spend a little bit more time on Will and, of course, on Barbosa? Man, I know this is shallow, but... Gosh dang, this Orlando Bloom is a handsome man. And he I think is. these movies he still is. These movies are probably the most handsome. I don't know, Kingdom of Heaven. I know people really like Legolas. <laughs> Kingdom of Heaven, yes. I think He's I smart actually in prefer him in Kingdom of Heaven. One of the greatest things about Will is like, especially when he in that scene where he confronts Norrington. So it's after the attack on Port Royal, and he goes to Norrington and he's like, We should be Just going slams after the axe on the slams table. The axe in. That's not good enough. But he also doesn't argue against Norrington where Norrington goes, do you know how to track someone across sea? Do you know what this, what you're implying is going to entail? He, he never contradicts something. He, he openly admits a couple of times he doesn't know he what he's doing. He goes find someone who knows how to do that. And they're true. But he, he, it's like one of those things that particularly the hero characters tend to fall into the pitfall of, I know everything or I, I have to know everything. And it's, uh, it's not right. And one of the greatest part things about Will is there is a vulnerability. There's an openness to him that's that's honestly inviting. But it also reminds us is that he's human. Uh, my wife and I just started a series. I was talking to Ben about it before we got on the mics. Called Sharp. It's from the '90s, 
early 90s, 1993, stars Sean Bean, takes place during the Napoleonic Wars. Really fun to watch. But what makes it fun is not the costuming, which is brilliant, or the historical accuracy, which is pretty dead on. It's the characters. And Sharp, the main character played by Sean Bean, he's a human. He's very human. He admits when he's not up to a task. He admits when he's feeling run down. He admits to weakness. Uh, it makes him much more compelling. I think you see the same thing in Will. At some point, I'm going to make all of you watch Battlestar Galactica. It has, said this it has the most human characters out of any show I've ever watched. Except the ones that you aren't human because they're Quest. actually Cylons. <laughs> yes, I do want to watch Mythic Quest. Yeah, Even the robots right. are human. They're not. They're Cylons, so they should be scrapped for the tin cans that they are. Well, you'll change your mind. <laughs> but no, I, I think Will is, especially in that first movie, he's he's super relatable. Especially as like a kid growing up. I loved Will as a kid. I like Jack now more as an adult. But as a kid, Will was my favorite character. Well, that's not maybe true. Maybe I think my favorite character is always Barbosa, but <laughs> my fa- well, until David well, Jones shows up. That's an interesting question. So, as a child, who was your favorite character in the Pirates of the Caribbean series? Because we all grew up watching them. Yeah, right? yeah. Davy Jones, hands down, huh? Yeah, uh, I still think it's Barbosa. I'm a I'm a sucker for the the tortured, broken heart. Trope. I do like that about Davy. As you get into like making him an actual character and not he's just this some big, big angry imposing. man just because he got his heart broken. Since childhood, he was your favorite for that reason, or is I think, something yeah. you've come to realize. I mean, in, in the f- in the first movie, Will was probably my favorite. But then you know when the second movie and he shows up and he's playing the organ. With I little, do love with his his, face or- his organ. <laughs> the theme he's for his scary. organ is. Oh. And he's so he's just he's got such presence. He well, yeah, but I mean, you, you've got Bill Nye again, where he—I mean, coming off of the Underworld series, uh, he's got some pretty cool presence in that too. Vic, Victor, was he Victor? And then able to have that performance shine through under those layers of CGI, which is honestly because yeah. obviously impressive. you get some of that with the skeletal version of Barbosa, but for the most part, it's I mean, Jeffrey even Rush. the non-CGI characters, Jack mm-hmm. has a lot of makeup and mm-hmm. like hair and stuff going on. Same with Barbosa, and those performances both mm-hmm. carry through. Yeah. Captain Jack was my favorite growing up. I liked his pizzazz. <laughs> He's very yeah. fun. He yes. had he resourcefulness. Is, he didn't have to live by the rules. I he liked Barbosa. Who's my favorite Sunny character? Ah. What is currently? <laughs> yes. It changes all the time. Okay. Smack That's or Charlie right. or Danny DeVito. <laughs> it's always one of those three. I think Barbosa Sometimes for me. Um, I think Barbosa for me Cricket. because he was. He's the man in charge. He's always got that air of the man in charge. I'm the oldest kid in the family. I want to be that man in charge. Yeah, I'm, I'm the baby. And I'm like, ah. Uh, and his, he's got a suave. He's suave. He's smooth. He's very, uh, honestly, kind of weirdly alluring just because of the confidence level. I loved Barbosa. And plus, I always liked the villains anyways just because being the bad guy is bad so kid. much. No, well, not necessarily. I just, being the bad guy is what fun. What is bad? Being the bad guy is fun. Yeah. It is fun. Yeah. Like and he, you know, he has an incredible voice. Yes, he has there's just, and then there's so many just little moments or details, like when they're about to do the what does he call it club hauling when they you lower the anchor and turn the interceptor to fire on the pearl before that's they, an actual yeah, thing yeah it's an but, actual naval and maneuver. before they do it there's a shot of Barbosa right, where you just see his ship. eyes narrow and it's and and then as you're watching you're just like how are you clocking that. Like, oh, how yeah. do you know for like already something's up? Oh yeah! Like, like he he's oh like it's just wonderful to what extent 
it's hard for any of the characters to surprise him. Is it fair to say that Barbosa was your favorite in childhood? I think so, mainly because of that that voice angle. I mean, it's always fun oh, embodying man. these villains, which is going to hold true when we get to the spotlight for this episode. I believe that comes up as well. And also, apparently, it this does. is the Orlando Bloom episode. Also, <laughs> given the Lord of we the did, Rings, we that we'll be covering later, although we haven't gotten to Legolas yet. We haven't talked about oh, Legolas yet, though, because we haven't met him. You'll meet him soon. Yes, indeed. I, suspect I think some. his hair is better in Pirates of the Caribbean. It, his hair his is so <laughs> The wig in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, it's but not you doing know, him any favors. He was he was a lot younger in Lord of the Rings he too. I mean, he was only uh, seventeen when they started Carl production. Rowe, pretty good. The first season that uh, what I've watched of it, brilliant. And he does not. Uh, he looks so much different now, and the character he plays is so different from anything. Uh, maybe. The closest character that I'm familiar with of Orlando Bloom's to his character in Carnival Row versus what I normally would see him in. There's some similarities you can draw between Balian from Kingdom of Heaven to the Inspector. If you've not seen Carnival Row, uh, it is fun. It's very cool. It's an Amazon original. And if you haven't listened to our crossover podcast episode with Deus Volt on Kingdom of Heaven. Yeah, seriously, we've, re- we've referenced it that. enough. <laughs> you got to go check yeah. that out. That was a lot of fun, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. So we early, got two Land of Bloom in the early aughts. Yeah, yeah oh I know. Gosh. Seriously. Two Barbosas over here, though? For sure, yeah. Awesome. Wait, so who voted? Ben voted Barbosa. Yeah. Did you land on Barbosa? Or you I said Davy Jones. I did. I did. He said Davy. But we're, if we're talking about the first, the first movie, movie only, it's, it's Will. It's Will. And I was always torn, like, as a kid, because I love the villains, Vader, Barbosa. What about you, Larissa? If we're talking first movie only, because I remember I really like Captain Jack. I don't remember the silly little song he sings in the second or third one where he's like singing about having his jar of dirt. I just thought that was so fun. <laughs> Anybody who sings a little <laughs> song to brag about that's something the, they've got going on or to lyrics. walk through their day-to-day chores, I think that's fun. But if it's the first movie only, and I know nothing else about them, I would probably go back to Elizabeth Swan just because... She's Elizabeth Swan. I, and she's Elizabeth amazing. Might have been my second. I really liked Elizabeth, especially in the later films. Yeah. She's yeah. got bite. Yeah. Mm. Well, also, even in the first like, film, she's mm-hmm. great. I had a huge crush on Keira Knightley as a kid. Absolutely. These movies yeah. and Pride and Prejudice. Forget about it. When did you see Pride and Prejudice first? I do have to ask. I don't know. I was pretty young because <laughs> I don't think I saw that one. Until and I we would have s- likely school. seen Keira Knightley even earlier because she's Queen Amidala. In oh, she's the ben double. Menace. She's she the is. body yes. double yeah. for Queen Amidala. Yeah. Which makes sense because they're yep, oddly oddly similar looking in those. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. In uh, episode one, which came out in 99. Yep. It'd be like uh, if uh, Daniel Radcliffe was a body double for Elijah Wood. That would be Game perfect, and I want a movie about it. <laughs> I really do. I want, a mov- I want a sequel to Guns Akimbo. <laughs> Question I have for you all. Is there a standout moment? Like when you think of Pirates of the Caribbean, whether it is the film or the rides, is there a moment that strikes you in particular visually does that make sense like a scene i don't remember the ride that much that's okay well in talking about the films and we covered this back in the middle of last season when we talked with casey about fight scenes for yeah. me it's the blacksmith fight yeah that fight, fight in the blacksmith shop is yeah. is really really good if i if something because it tells you me, so though, much about will and jack very true something that stands out to me is is the music what's weird is because uh the the actual pirates theme is the bum 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 bum. It's very strangely similar to Gladiator. Is it very? Go Klaus Badelt. Klaus whom? Klaus Badelt. It's spelled B A D E L T. Yeah, that's close enough. But that Belt. it's not. That's not necessarily what I'm actually referring to when I say the music, though. Mm-hmm. Um, from the ride, uh, Yo Ho Yo Ho, right? Like that song that we all associate. 
from the movies. That's true. It's I mean, the uh, heave ho all together, hoist the colors high. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. such a cool tune. And yeah. those things, the, being a singer, being a lifelong musician, that's definitely ingrained in my head. Mm-hmm. I love the soundtrack for all of the Pirates of the movies. It is one of the best things about them. But those those songs, the fact that they worked Yo-Ho, Yo-Ho, Bottle of Rum into the first movie and the second movie and the third movie, and they worked that other song about hoisting the colors in the third movie mm-hmm. very cool and, and then, those definitely stand out and in dead man's chest you and i were talking about this earlier today the the way that hans i love the way in that soundtrack that hans zimmer was able to use low volume and speed because the kraken theme yeah. and father and son are both just so well done and so sinister and, and they put and they take light motifs and elements from the first film's yep score and add additional layers and elements to them and just there it, was a it, point such a wonderful expansion of what was already there there was a point when George when Georgia my wife and I we were looking up why there's because Hans Zimmer was credited on the first film too and on the the soundtrack Klaus started Zimmer finished yep yeah and Zimmer ended up finishing it up <clears throat> that's why you get the the it's all it's a seamless transition going into the second and third films where musically it's, it's, yeah it's Zimmer's score 100 percent now, I will stand by the blog post that I wrote for, for storytelling two years ago now mm-hmm. that Zimmer's best score is actually The Last Samurai. Hands down, always will be, in my opinion, his best score. But the Pirates films, definitely high-ranking, top three at least. The Gladiator. Is the same score. There's also as... there's also some <laughs> Nolan entries that could have a seat at that table. Yeah, the, sure. the Dark Knight is mm-hmm. pretty good, but his top film is still... As far as my the scoring goes, it's still the, the Last Samurai. If you're interested in my opinion on that, you can go read the blog post where I broke it down like a music major. <laughs> as best as I, I didn't go completely crazy, but definitely spent a lot of extra Should time. Should be your catchphrase. Breaking it down like a music major. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't have catchphrases except maybe pour me more rum. On the subject of favorite scenes or moments from the film, I can't point to an exact one, but what both the ride does and the movie does is even though I've gotten done sitting down, watching something for two and a half hours or waiting in a long, long line, I feel ready to go have an adventure afterwards. They imbue it with such energy that I can't help but walk away from it and feel like I too should go become a pirate captain or do whatever it is in my life that will make me feel so fulfilled. I'm ready to go turn off the movie when I get home. Seriously. There's one film in my life that I've watched through and then immediately restarted it and watched again. Okay. And that is Shrek 2. <laughs> <laughs> but I would do that with Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl. We talked yeah. about the, the film that I did that with. The only film I've ever done that with. And I it was Godfather. It. Yep. it was the first time I watched it. I And my dad told me I was nuts. You are nuts. And I did. <laughs> I, turned, I started the darn thing over. I fell asleep like halfway through because it was like 2 in the was morning. Was it because you were so confused after watching it? <laughs> that you no, were like, I got to have a talked, second we go did. around. We did talk about this when we did the Godfather episode. It was essentially, yeah, I watched it and I was like, I, I know what just happened, but I need to know more. And I think I just need to watch it again. God, uh, Pirates is one of those films that I, I think I watched for like a week straight just every day. I watched the movie. I remember as a child watching the Curse of the Black Pearl, and then I think I went out and had my parents buy me the book adaptation of the really? movie and read it. I, I did that. I enjoyed it so much. I never saw. I had the uh, I had the uh, the comic adaptation of Iron Man, mm-hmm. the well, the movie. I read. I had the book version, so it's yeah. the same thing. Where it's like the script, and then I would watch the movie, and I'd read the book again. 
completely captured and me. I loved the first one. In hindsight, one thing that I will always appreciate the early 2000 aughts for is DVDs that have unbelievable behind the scenes so bonus features. Much. Because the pirates stuff is incredibly well done on the original Black yeah, Pearl DVD. Is. And they had a bunch of pirate history stuff too, like le- learning more about Calico Jack or Bartholomew Roberts or Blackbeard or John Paul Jones, who is, I'm thinking about it now, is a distant distant he was distant. a privateer he, he was not a pirate uh, a john paul jones is a pirate is steve, yeah. bonnet, a privateer. Say again? Is steve bonnet in these bonus features I for those fellow no. our flag means our flag means fans steve bonnet is in black flag the assassin's video game don't you kill him he's also in pirate does radio does he sound like reese darby <laughs> he does not well, he I sounds he like did. an englishman that's he does. He sounds like you don't he sounds like him in pirate radio he's your friend which one switches there's a turncoat Vance. I thought that was Bonnet. I think it's Captain Vance. You do kill Captain Vance. Uh, I thought Bonnet switched. So I did not lead with this, but give, we've talked about the structure of the film, the storytelling, obviously its origins with the ride, the most iconic characters. This will be another entry in our Cinematic Icons series. I have an idea for an ending. I would like to end this episode with a round of Liar's Dice. As we discuss all these fabulous pirates, it is now time for Captain Bojangles McGee. And Fuzzy Buckshot, Midshipman Stahovsky. Lieutenant Smith. <laughs> Lieutenant Smith. <laughs> to play a round of Liar's Dice. So Admiral Ravencrow is going to explain the rules of this game. Because if you watch Dead Man's Chest and don't know exactly how it works, one of the most beautiful parts of that scene, I did watch a video that breaks down the rules, and it talked about how effectively Davy Jones loses what he wants, which is obviously Will as part of his crew, as soon as Bootstrap Bill sits to his left. Because at that point, the only person in the game who Davy Jones can call a liar is Bootstrap. I'm glad you're going to be explaining the rules because Fuzzy Buckshot has no idea what's going on. (laughs) I've played this a lot. Captain Bojangles McGee has seen the pirate films, but Mm -hmm. it's been a few years and she's slept since then. (laughs) Fuzzy Buckshot doesn't know what films are. We're going to play a version of this that I have played actually at some like family get togethers and let me give a brief description. But the game itself we are playing because it it is played in Pirates 2, Dead Man's Chest. One of my dice has a skull and crossbow. On I it. believe hey. that's the one. What? He has an unfair advantage. Yeah. I do. All I right. have the most pirate. He's so uh, here is how and this works. Luck matters in games of pirates. No, it's all numbers. It's luck. all numbers. All right. So for those of you who have not played this game before, here is how this works. However many players you have, everyone needs a dice cup. And depending on how many players, we've got five dice in each of our cups. If you have more people, you probably need want fewer dice in each cup. Otherwise, the game is going to take forever. Uh, we're just going to do one round. But you do you can do a version of this where every time someone loses a round, they lose one of their dice. So you're progressively yep. decreasing the number of dice throughout. We're going to do one round. And the way this works is we're all going to roll our dice under our cups, flip them over, and only we look at what's under the cup. We're then going to bid how many of a certain number we think is collectively on all of our dice. So there's 20 dice at the table. We're also playing the version where ones are wild and count as every number if you need them to. So that at that point means that roughly a third of the dice could be any one number. So if I think between the twos that I have rolled potentially and any ones at the table, I could bid six or seven twos as an opening bid, and then we go around the table. So the only way that I can lose is if I call Steven a liar and he's right, or if Caleb calls me a liar and he's right. The number of dice has to increase every time, or the number on the dice, but you can't backslide 
on the number of dice. You can backslide on the number on the die. All right. <clears throat> Makes sense. I'm ready to lose. <laughs> yes, let's do it's this. It's actually quite simple. You got it. You, you better keep the sound in. Yep. Oh, of course. For authenticity's sake. Ooh, I'm so. This is tense, dear listener. Oh my goodness, I gotta count. Did anybody see mine? No. No. Nah, I see nothing. I accidentally bleed my dice like I bleed my cards. <laughs> I was. The whole table will see him. I was uh, at 19. I'm on Dodge Crow's Nest, and Captain said I was the best, but I nearly lost my eyes to God just looking out for old Cape Cod. I love you, Steven. Yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) I'm going to give everyone additional dice just to determine who's going first. Ah, Steven's leading off with nine. nine. Nothing to say for doubles. Four twos. Four threes. Six threes. (laughs) Oh, God. I think that there's Which is that, Yeah, yeah, four was low. We're, we're at that point closer to the average. Wait, did you say four and then you said six? I yeah, said you know, remember, six, six three. So you jumped by two? But, but a third, a third of the, a third of the, a third of the <laughs> dice letter, is around six or seven. So that's actually Wait, to the average. How many years before the mast we, we wager in? Wait, what? I wager. 15 years before I ain't betting no years. Yeah, we, we, we should have done that before we started the game. I mean, the eternity of service before the Dutchman is iconic in Dead Man's Chest. I just like being at sea. Six fours. You could Seven have even said fours. two fours. Seven fours. This man's crazy. Seven fives. I call you a liar. Benjamin Ravencrow, <laughs> so, he calls you a liar. All right, let's see our dice. I had sure. two fives. I have... A wild. All right. I have two fives. I have zero fives. Oh, no. One, two, it. three, four. You'll be a liar. <laughs> Benjamin <laughs> Ravenclaw, you'll be Ravencrow. a liar, and you'll spend an eternity going? on this ship. Is that it? Oh, my word. That's it. That's how the game works. Yes. That was Wait, so there's one loser and so, three winners? Yep. In that the, sucks, if you play ben. it long form, <laughs> if you play it long form, Ben would remove one of uh, his dice, and we would all roll again. I think I'm batting a little above 500 on games on this podcast. It's all right. <laughs> well, oh. hey, you know, now we get to go watch Lord of the Rings. Now we do. We will see you for the spotlight portion. And given this was another pirate episode, we will, of course, be uh, segueing here into some ragtag bunch with a bit of good ale. Oh, good ale, thou art my darling. Thou art my joy, both night and morning. Ah, oh, dear. It is is of good ale to you I sing, and to good ale I'll always cling. I like my mug filled to the brim, and I'll drink all you'd like to bring. Oh, Gail, thou art my darling, thou art my joy, both night and morning. It is you that helps me with my work, and from a task I'll never shirk. While I can get a good homebrew and better than one pint, I'd like to. Oh, Gail, thou art my darling, thou art my joy, both night and morning. I love you in the early morn, I love you in daylight, dark or dawn. And when I'm weary, worn, or spent, I'll turn the tap and ease the bend. Oh, Gail, thou art my darling, thou art my joy, both night and morning. It 
is you that makes my friends my foes. It is you that makes me wear old clothes. <laughs> but since you come so near my nose, it's up you comes and down you goes. Oh, good ale, thou art my darling, thou art my joy, both night and morning. And if all my friends from Adam's race was to meet me here all in this place, I could part from all without one fear before I part from my Hear, hear! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Ale, thou art my darling, thou art my joy, both night and morning. You have caused me deaths, and I've often swore I never would drink strong ale anymore. But you, for all that, I'll forgive, and I'll drink strong ale as a <laughs> Oh, good ale, thou art my darling, thou art my joy, both night and morning. A wraith. I mean, a thousand people have made this joke, but how f-ing hilarious would it be to have, you know, the nine ring race and then little half squat <laughs> Frodo wraith? Welcome back to the Scenes of Power, our spotlight series for this this year. For as long as it takes us to get through it. This um, is exciting. This is our first multiple scenes of power. Yeah, we, we really are. We really are together. covering like four different scenes here. We get two. Spoken introductions and then two action scenes, both for a villain and a hero with nine grand was the amount that I found when I was looking up how long or how much it would take to uh, take the SB team to New Zealand. Nine grand, that's not that bad. Flight tickets or plus accommodations for staying. See, that's just that's just that's that's just the flights. (laughs) So I I will preface this conversation with what I preface the actual scene with when we were watching it, uh, because I figure we'll talk about them in the order that they pop up. Christopher Lee as Saruman and just his presence and especially his voice is what just got me into doing character yes. voices when I was a kid and without having any knowledge of just what kind of a body of work Christopher Lee has or just his history and legacy. To How point. did you feel about Saruman the I White? <laughs> I need to make a note for our listeners at home who, like me, are confused by the fact that there is a Saruman and a Sauron, and they're both bad guys, and they're in cahoots, but their names are unconnected. I think that it can be confusing. So, Saruman, wizard man, yes. evil. We used to think he was good. Mm-hmm. He betrayed his best friend. Are yes. they best friends, or is that yeah, just something much. I'm inserting in the story? You, you know, it'd be more like betraying your unusually close cousin. Because okay. they're not human, they're they are the wizards. The wizards are, are not technically human. They are older than than dirt, and mm. they were like sent years old. Yeah, thousands of years old. They were sent to Middle Earth to help protect it. They're like there, are, there were five of them. It's like your best friend who's also your boss. You're sort of related, mm. but he's also your boss, and everyone's had that experience, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a. Uh, <laughs> The, Good luck. They are kind the of. They business. are kind of angelic. Like you're not. You're not far off from that uh, assessment. He betrays his best employee, who has worked with him for 
so many years, it's I hard mean, to remember And then beats that. the shit out of him and with magic, right? Just yes. like whips him around with sticks. Yes. And that I was fascinated by how the camera was moving throughout that scene. I have, of course, as you know, listener, not seen much of the Lord of the Rings films. But it's interesting just going across the few scenes I have seen so far. And watching how the camera kind of tilted you and flew you around a little bit like a bird leading up to Saruman also making... Sir Ian McKellen fly around the room like a bird. Sir he like had him. Sir Ian McKellen. There's a lot of nobility in the room in that shot. Well, it really, and is. Fellowship of the Ring more so than the two films that followed it definitely uses those intense close-ups. I know the one that I think people joke about is well, when Gandalf has found out the origins of the Ring and he comes up behind Frodo, you see his hand tap him on the shoulder. Frodo turns. And then the camera's just right up in Ian McKellen's face as he goes, is it secret? Is it safe? Oh, my word. Um, It's a little terrifying. But yes, the the camera direction is so dynamic throughout the whole trilogy. Yeah, but I think the fellowship a little more so because there's a little bit. There's less wide action. By the time you get into the two it is towers, more, it is more get, personal, smaller scale fights. So yeah, yeah. the camera By the time you does get a into lot the of the two towers and you there, get into uh, the return, especially of the King, Return of the King. Uh, there's such massive. The camera's a mile away because there's a thousand people. There's on thousands screen. of people smacking each other with sharp metal instruments. It's great. It's loads of fun. But so the the wizards, you you're introduced. They they speak first. They they relay a lot of. There's a lot of information in that conversation. Yes. Um, but I caught get, maybe 20% of it. That's okay. It's, that's probably, honestly, enough. But the thing about Sir Christopher Lee, why I think he was not chosen for Gandalf is because of his voice. It's too powerful. And Can you th- give us a decent Christopher Lee, Ben? The nine have left Minas Morgul. It's pretty close. That was pretty, pretty good. good. I've been doing that since I was 10. He, so, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, it's so impressive. Your hard a, work has paid off, Ben. There's a thing about Sauruman's voice. That it it ensnares people. It 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 helps either bolster them. It's almost like having a bard. It's almost like he could give inspiration or cutting words. I don't think this scene that I'm about to reference is going to rise to the threshold of us covering it for scenes of power, but I'll mention it here. And it's when he's casting the spell when they're trying to traverse through the mountains. Ooh, we might because, just have to watch it for context. Yeah, but at the same well, time. the picture you have this great scene because we saw in his introduction hit the Tower <laughs> of Isengard. So. You have this sequence where Saruman is on top of that tower just speaking a spell out onto the wind, and you can hear the echoes of it. The the hobbits and Gandalf and their traveling companions at that point, the Fellowship of the Ring, can hear, as I think it's described, there's a foul voice on the air from miles away that is causing the mountain to start collapsing around them. Yeah. Saruman, the power of that vocal performance is just Um, so so good. Sir Chris, really, how did you feel about his introduction? Well, I'll offer one other parallel because we're going to talk about the introduction of Saruman and the fight with Gandalf that follows it, and then the introduction of Aragorn or Strider, and then we also skipped a few scenes ahead and watched the fight the with fight the Wraiths at Weathertop. Sul, uh, Weathertop. And we have a wonderful kind of Saruman is introduced as ally, turns out to be villain. Aragorn is introduced as suspicious. scary and suspect, yeah. Very suspicious. And then turns out to be an ally. Twist a ruse. Yeah. And he and you'll notice uh Sauron introduces himself. Sauron introduces himself. Mm-hmm. Mm. As Gandalf is riding up to the to the tower at Isengard, the tower is called Orthanc. As he's riding up, rides uh, to Isengard. Sauron is introducing himself. Counsel. It's all about him. Oh. Did you for that's that is a why you catch. have come, is it not? Did you Larissa catch the part? 
where Saruman called out Gandalf on smoking too much weed. <laughs> he totally yeah. did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, is that what he's talking? But yes. then the scene kept moving. So your I was love like, yeah, of the leaf You're getting high too much. Really <laughs> clouded your mind. Slowed your mind. Sorry. But still, yeah, he, he yells again Gandalf for going to Hobbiton and getting high. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. It's neither here nor there whether or not the hobbits were smoking tobacco, which Tolkien was a an avid smoker of pipe. Um, almost like every photo of him, ha- he has a pipe. It's never really discussed whether or not the halfling's leaf is... They're pipe weed. Pipe. It's called pipe is, weed. Yeah, they call it pipe weed. The way they play it off of the movie, it's it's there's no way it's anything else. It's it's weed. The last of the lawn bottom leaf. Like, that's what it is. <laughs> not to get too into the weeds, but a good character moment. Because Gandalf is a wizard of the people. He lives in the world and has friends all across Middle-earth. Saruman is very removed from people. He, you do he get sits that in his tower. With his straight hair mm-hmm. and his cl- fancy white robes and all of his weird professional, like, I don't know. He just seems like a man separate of that world. And so it's interesting to know that that comes through in this story. You know what it feels like? It feels like the professor who's actually teaches versus the department head and, and in those scenes you're not you're not quite sure what Sauron's angle is yet it's not to say that the, he's bad it's just he's he's more academic he's more of a tightwad than Gandalf who's more like, logical versus relational yeah where Gandalf's except like, for where that logic leads him yeah the logic <laughs> is flawed unfortunately you know I like when Gandalf touched that weird black ball in the middle of the room and ah. then saw the eye and the eye went eh. <laughs> are, we, are we gonna get into what that weird black ball is do you want do you want to know what the weird black ball is I mean they kind of talk about it in that they scene. call it a seeing stone they name it it's called you a can see stuff through it yeah. and you then see another like, eye yeah. It's, like a, tele- it's like, like a magical telescope. Some oh, of them are cool. lost, so we don't know who else is using them to watch mm-hmm. back. When they were all accounted for, they were like and like they were like a telephone. You could call people effectively. Oh my with god, the they were like the Rocky Talkies. Rocky Talkies. Yes. <laughs> Sending stones, yes. Exactly. <laughs> um but but more so. You could see the other person. You could use them to to see things almost like a telescope, but like over massive distances. The only problem is they've been lost. They're old. They're very old. And so, like Gandalf says, you don't know who else could be watching or listening. And the Palantir come up twice in The Lord of the Rings. And both times they have driven great men to do really stupid things. So only particular people have them. Well, yeah, the big nasty has one too. Or at least it's inferred. And that caused Well, it did problems. make that like King and when, Boo and noise when at the time. touched of... it through the cloth, he got a vision. Or the, we as the audience kind of implied that Gandalf saw it too. Got a vision of the eye of Sauron, which they were just talking Who's about. Who's different from Saruman. Yep. The, the, the big bad. Mm-hmm. The big bad has been talking <laughs> to Sauron through that rock. Sauron has been talking to Saruman. And again, I don't think we're actually going to watch it, but there's a scene later where you hear it speak. You hear Sauron speak to Saruman, telling him, build me an army worthy of Mordor. And then, Scary, and then they start. Really good voice. Then they start creating an army of orcs. <laughs> then they, then you he saw throws how orcs green, out of the ground. Yeah, you no, saw how, like yeah. turnips. Yeah, you saw how green and wonderful and beautiful Not Isengard was. Quite the oh, yeah, same. Like, it was, was all green and there was, there was gardens and it looked very nice. Um, 
Saruman industrializes the whole complex, tears Aww. down all of the green to create That orcs. is sad. Yes, and it pisses off some particularly powerful trees. We'll get to them. Groot. <laughs> so then uh, they've discovered bad things, the wizards fight. How did you... I, like? After when you called it right out of the on, gate, you were like, wizard fight. As soon yes. as it was a wizard it. fight. It kind of stressed me out. I'm so tempted, and I don't feel good about this to make fun of the wizard fight. It's I weird. would like to hear your more dignified perspectives on the wizard fight. I don't know how I feel about it. It's still to this day. As a we child, grew up with Harry Potter. The coolest thing. Because I was like, oh, there's wizards or whatever. And he's throwing them around. He yeah. like swi- she swishes them around in the air like a man doing a breakdancing move yeah. on the dance Being floor. Being exposed to more media now. And yeah, as you mentioned Harry we Potter. Grew, like, and growing stuff up like on that, Harry Potter, the magic in Harry Potter is much more visual. Super impressive. It's much more visual. Like, you know, every spell has its own color and its own design and its own light effect. And the wizards beat, throwing each other around the room, like, it, I don't know, without any of that additional pizzazz, it kind of felt a little lackluster. It's also components. important to know, yeah. for you, Larissa, Tolkien, it's not like Harry Potter where there's like a hard rules to this magic. This is some soft magic. The magic is very soft. It's very. It's never... And talked that's about the thing. rules. Like yeah. people who could do magic just do stuff. Mm. And it's not super explained. And it's the minutiacy. Super, super I'm okay with that. And so I think Peter Jackson taking that kind of lack works. of knowledge. Yeah. There's just there's just not a lot of Because I don't think it would have fit if they were material. like throwing fireballs at each other. Well and then the, <laughs> that'd but be cool. Like though. they do. <laughs> Later. Later. But in this one but it's just this... all like mind and then people moving around. I don't know much about you guys would I would defer to you all as far as the direction of those types of scenes. I'm glad there are only two figures involved in the fight because I felt like at times it was hard to follow what was happening and who was moving where. But maybe that's just my lack With of experience. With those closer, more dynamic shots and yeah. camera movements. Yeah. W- having only two people in the scene. Helped they wouldn't have worked. done it otherwise. Yeah. If, if there were more people, it would have been it, yeah, shot it would from have further away. You would have had wider angle. It gave it a lot of energy and drama, which I thought was really cool. Oh, it's very dramatic. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. I think it's a little frenetic. It's a little, honestly, frantic, but it works. Even to this day, I love the wizard fight and I hate the wizard fight because I just, I don't know how I would have done it differently, but it's not, it still doesn't quite live up to, well, I want to see them really duke it out. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how I would have done that. I love it, but at the same time, eh, I don't know. I have a hard time describing the wizard fight. I wish I got to see more of Sir Ian McKellen's reaction emotionally, like his actor performance to Saruman's betrayal, because it seems like that would have been a bigger deal where I'm seeing a lot more of the action of the fight, but not really getting to be with him in the experience of it as he's like whipped around the room. That's a fair criticism, I think. No, I think so too. In the rest of the trilogy, there's not really many moments where you get those emotional beats of him dealing with you know this massive betrayal i think part of it is because gandalf is so focused on his mission that he just doesn't have time to stop and think about well and you only himself. have so much movie also just, <laughs> yeah four also, so speaking <laughs> of so true. much movie I, I do just like the fact that we're, we're pairing these up we kind of made that decision in the moment tonight as yeah watching them. just that because you do have that gradual i'm going to this character for aid He's telling me it's worse than I think. Oh, no, it is actually worse than I think because yeah. my friend is now working for the, our arch enemy. And then on the flip side of it, we have 
who is this strange man sitting in the corner? And we why is he staring at me? He has me. like Han Solo vibes. I like him. Very much so early on. Yeah. The way he's lit and everything in the room. I don't remember Star Wars well enough to say for certain, but it feels like that energy of that man in the, the back cantina, corner. Yeah. yeah. That's fair. He's definitely he, on the outskirts of society. There is a specific movement he does. I'm glad you pointed that out. I'd never made that connection before. When, skipping ahead a bit, the ring falls on Frodo's finger. And when they're fighting the rays. And then Strider like oh no, on the floor. just he, sits forward immediately into goes, action. Oh, crap. That, that movement, that specific movement reminds me a lot of Han Solo. Oh. he's like, I'm immediately going to leap into action. I think it's that... Uh, Chaotic good. <laughs> I think it comes from that idea that both Solo and, and Strider, Aragorn, are on the edges of society in their own way. They're down and dirty men. They feign <laughs> in a relaxed state <laughs> to kind of trick the people watching them. With Solo, it's this easygoing, uh, devil-may-care attitude where he, that is an absolute front. And he's always ready for a, for a fight, but he also actually does give a way more than he ever lets on. He never has to get ready because he just stays ready. Kind of. And he just kind of relaxes to the visible eye, but is never actually relaxed. Strider, I think, does a lot of the same thing. And it comes from that, you know, he, he lives in the wilds. He's always got to be alert because you never know what could happen. But you've also got to look like you're comfortable so that you mm-hmm. don't give you off the appearance in. of being a threat. At least that's kind of the way I, I interpret it. Yeah, it makes sense So he's to me. sitting alone at this table in the corner where, if you notice, behind him is a window. And where he's situated in the bar, he can see the whole Everybody. bar. He can see the behind the bar. He can see the, the main entrance the Hobbits came through. He there's I assume there's another entrance. He could probably see that too. He puts himself where he can see all the action. And he can have a quick get out if he needs it. And I don't know if that's... I'm, I think that was definitely intentional for the way that they shot the scene. And it makes sense for the character because he, he is that... Rangers are... When you get into the lore, they are protecting the Shire. The reason, Part of the reason the Shire has been they're as tranquil like as it real is... real-life army rangers. They're, yeah, they're like, honestly, border patrol, but better. Significantly better. And that's what they do. They range... The edges Green of... Green Berets, of, Navy Seals, take your pick. Yeah, they're, they're extremely, extremely potent fighting force. But they spend lots of time on their own, and they deal with threats before anybody else knows about them. So this particular ranger man, who we covered <laughs> off mic, is quite handsome. <laughs> the most handsome. <laughs> he is. This guy is... He acting independently, or is he working alongside or for a particular cause? Or is that yet to be known? In the course of the movie, you kind of don't necessarily know where his allegiance lies, except for the fact that he helps the hobbits and he makes sure that they don't get murked by the ring race when the ring race show up. He's a good guy and he's a friend of Gandalf. Is handsome pretty man. Much what he, you know I think he point. tells yeah. them that he, he knew Gandalf. Strider the handsome man. Maybe not man. in the movie, but in the books. In the books, he does 100% tell them, I'm a friend of Gandalf. What you do come to find out is a lot like this. He's a he's a major major character, um, so there's a lot of things that we'll just save to keep you mm-hmm. interested. But he is he's big. Got to keep that percentage important. style ticking up, right? He's very important. But Which, for the moment, yeah. what you know is he's a friend. He's obviously got uh, a plethora of skills, and he is super handsome. And in terms of the percentage interest, that's why we ended where we did with the fight at Weathertop. The Hobbits have. Or rather, the hobbits, except for Frodo, have made a fire that has attracted the ring wraiths to their Goofy position. Goofy hobbits. The wraiths. That irritates me. 
the right Think to show up. Think through your choices. Yeah. Well, but they've never been out in the world. They've never been in danger before. And That's hobbit true, appetites I mean, are They were hungry. Yeah. Mm. Come on. And so, yeah, so they, they, they've attracted the wraiths and the ring rays, five of them show up. They are there. It's like their job is to get the ring and kill whoever has it. End of. That's their job. And they nearly succeed. And Aragorn shows up. Strider just jumps out of the blue with a torch and a sword and he 1v5s all. Yeah, he takes the whole the whole crew out. It's pretty impressive. It is badass. And I love it. I like how much fire is used. It kind of reminds me of, and I haven't seen enough to say for sure, but how I imagine old monster movies and like fire pushing Frankenstein and other scary yeah. beings back and how they just kind of flail backwards, which is both awesome and a little bit funny. And they're like, Whoa. well, yeah, I think when the, when the torch gets stuck in the rain, that's always very entertaining. Yeah. yeah. The thing about the ring race yeah. is that they are spirits. They cannot be killed, but they can be effectively banished by destroying the body that they have manifested at the time. Mm. So in this case, he sets their robes on fire and they can't hold a form. And they are banished for a time. They get their bodies smacked multiple times. The very next thing they get Aragorn explained. He explains to the hobbits what they were. They were men. They were kings. And they were corrupted by the ring because they were given rings of power. And they were already men who had power. So power and power and power compounds and corrupts. Mm. And now they have to li- live with the consequences That's of those choices. These weird, ultra evil, very spooky, Dementor-like they, ghost they, men. It's kind of the jury is out on whether any of them can function individually, except for one. Um, and we'll get to him at some point, probably in the third movie. He actually gets named. Do they divvy up and like go on different tasks? Because there were only five that they came can. after. But they really, can act independently. They can act independently, but really only one of them ever shows any real like intelligent thought outside of like you can send a hound to hunt something by itself if it has a scent. And they always are drawn to the ring. Mm. So in a in a sense, yeah, they, they can act individually. They have a collective individu- goal but can act individually. They can act individually, but it's it's not really described whether or not they can they process complex thought mm. individually except to fulfill their their one goal. What are your thoughts on the sounds that the rays make? Because oh, such good design. Oh, so spooky. The screech, yeah. The screech. Ah! They talk about it in the book, but it's not like they they say that like they scream or they they howl. And I love I love the sound design for for the sound they make. It's just so unnatural and so hideous. And and over the course of the movies, the way different characters react to hearing that is. It reminds it's me intense. of Buddy the Elf when the radiator kicks on. <laughs> He's like, it's making a scary noise. Yo, going, that noise is scary. Yeah. It really is. It sounds like it because they're weird, like whispery. It reminds me of, it also reminds me of when my heat kicks on sometimes. I mean, Elf and the Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King came out in the same year. Mm-hmm. Huh. I almost said this during our last recording saying that the Lord of the Rings films is very easy to remember when they came out because they came out in 01, 02, and 03. Yeah. So the Hobbits are on their way to Rivendell now. They're on their way to a friend's house with Aragorn showing them how to get there. And they're ducking the wraiths along the way um, until we just saw Frodo got stabbed. So now the timetable has been moved up. They got to get to friend's dying. house mm. quick because otherwise... Basically, he's poisoned. Otherwise, he's going to die. 
That sounds stressful. It is. I a liked little. it better when they were partying and there were dragon fireworks. Well, if the whole movie was Hold parties and dragon that. fireworks, <laughs> it definitely wouldn't have sold the way it did. I mean, that's true. You got to have conflict and adventure and whatnot. So I understand that that's part of the process. There are good I parties coming. I also miss dragon fireworks. We will show you every party scene. Okay. Because there are more than one. Deal. Okay. <laughs> then I would say my current percentage of interest my interest dial and in being willing to watch the entire series through uh, has actually just maintained i wouldn't say it's increased from these scenes not because the scenes are not excellent they're just not to my taste so i'm going to need some more parties or good times or like emotional moments propelling the story forward for me to feel compelled to continue however i will continue because i've committed to this project i have a question yeah if we had just shown you the wizard scene you think it would have gone up? It would have decreased. We decreased. Ah. Wizards only. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we we're doing it right. Thank you for listening. Please leave a review, give a rating, subscribe, and share with your friends from wherever you get your podcasts. It all helps Storytelling Breakdown reach more people and grow our community. Check out the Storytelling Breakdown blog, past episodes, reach out, leave a comment, send a message. You can find Storytelling Breakdown on Facebook and Instagram, and you can reach our team at info at storytelling-breakdown.com. Again, people, that is info at storytelling-breakdown.com, not underscore. You can also find our miniseries episodes for Campaign Diaries and RPG Decades at our website and where podcasts are found. Our theme music is by Kurt Remke. Our logo is by Daniel Church. Our podcast is hosted wherever you get your podcasts by John Dawkins and Wayne Shout Productions. Everyone has a story. These are some of our favorites. And this has been Storytelling Breakdown. SP Wayne Shout Productions. Wayne Shout. <laughs>